You're listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. For more information about our church, visit our website at redrocksbaptist.org or follow us on Instagram at Red Rocks Baptist. Over the holidays, uh, I read a short series of three books by an author named Joel Rosenberg. He's written several kind of nonfiction, political, religious thriller series. And if you're not sure what that means. He basically takes current events in the Middle East and he writes a political thriller with it. And the last book I read uh, started with a bang, literally. Because in the first 50 pages, the president was giving his State of the Union address and ISIS attacked America. And in the middle of the State of the Union, ISIS decided to launch an attack against the Capitol. They used World War II era howitzers and fired uh, these, these charges into the Capitol building, setting it on fire, killing many senators and, re- and representatives, other government officials. They tried to ambush the president's motorcade when he was leaving the building. And at the same time, they launched chemical weapons attacks in six other cities in America. It was a lot to take in. And it was thrilling. I mean, it was like, I can't stop doing this. I can't stop reading. And Lord willing, that will never happen. But if it did, that would be very, very scary. And one of the first questions beyond (laughs) how do we let this happen, as if we can control everybody in the world, maybe that's part of our hubris. But one of the biggest questions I think that we would have is, why would God... Let this evil group of people attack a Christian nation. I mean, let's think about ISIS, right? ISIS is extreme on the terrorist side of things. There are Muslims and then there are extremist Muslims. And these people are, are wicked. There's no other way around it. They're brutal in their violence. They're seeking to establish a Sharia law globally in a caliphate. They want to bring all lands on the earth under their flag. And if anyone gets in their way and does not convert, the Quran is very clear, they should be killed. And, and we would struggle, I think, with God to say, Lord, why are you letting those people attack us? But, but we have to be a little careful here too because we're not as righteous as we think we are. Yes, it is true much to the secularist chagrin. America was founded on Christian principles. But Pastor Addison read from Romans chapter one this morning. Romans chapter one describes a nation or a group of people that rejects God. And that's exactly what's happening here. The wrath of God is being poured out because we as Americans have thrown God out of the public square. We have rejected him. We have said that he has no place here. The sexual revolution is normal, quote unquote, and now it's being forced down everybody's throats. Murder is masquerading as a woman's choice and as a compassionate end of life option. Injustice is rampant. And there are a lot of people who languish in in these situations. Drugs and gambling just continue to multiply and grow. And I think if you were to take any one of those issues as Christians, what should our response be? It should be brokenness and grief because our nation is sinful. We want revival to come to our land. And that's exactly the situation Habakkuk found himself in. 
Now, America is not God's chosen people. Let's be very clear about that. Habakkuk was a prophet of Judah, living in the late 600s BC. And he was part of the people of God. They had received the covenants. They had received the promises. And yet, they were people who were disobeying the law. They didn't serve God the way that they ought. They didn't worship him the way that they ought. Injustice was rampant in the land. He talks about it in his book. And so he takes this burden to the Lord as as we ought to do, the burden of injustice and sin and evil in our land. Habakkuk takes it to the Lord in chapter one, verses two through four, and says, Lord, how long is it gonna be before you answer? Why are you allowing injustice to go unpunished? And God says, well, Habakkuk, I... I see what's going on, and I have an answer for it, but it's going to surprise you. Hold on to your hat. I'm going to send the Babylonians to conquer Judah to correct them, to chasten them. And and Habakkuk is flabbergasted. Lord, did I hear you right? You're going to take, okay, I admit, Lord, we have our own problems. That's what he's saying. But he was really struggling that a more wicked nation would come and judge a more righteous one. And that's where we pick up in the text. Habakkuk has a dilemma. Lord, why would you permit something more evil, someone more evil, to overcome someone more righteous? And what does he do? Well, like he did at the beginning of the chapter, he comes to the Lord. And that's in Habakkuk 1, verse 12. And we'll read through verse 17 here. That's where he is today. Why would God use a nation more wicked to punish a less wicked nation? Well, let's look at the scriptures. Habakkuk says, addressing the Lord, are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have appointed them for judgment. O rock, you have marked them for correction. You are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he? Why do you make men like the fish of the sea, like creeping things that have no ruler over them? They take up all of them with a hook. They catch them in their net and they gather them in their dragnet. Therefore, they rejoice and are glad Therefore, they sacrifice to their net and burn incense to their dragnet because by them their share is sumptuous, their food is plentiful. Shall they therefore empty their net and continue to slay nations without pity? And if there's ever a case of ending on a minor key, this is it. This is Habakkuk's dilemma. You see, there's a There's a second dialogue that he's having with the Lord. Last week we covered the first in chapter 1, verses 2 through 11. This is the beginning of his second dialogue with the Lord. And his dilemma is, why, God, would you use a nation more wicked to punish a less wicked one? That's the big question. Habakkuk is really struggling at this point. And it's, it's, it actually comes through in the way that he writes the question. In verse 12, he, he uses the questions. In verse 13, there's the why again, but it's not the formal complaint of verses 2 and 3. It, it's almost like he's stuttering these words out, just trying to think through as fast as he can how to ask this question because he's caught flat-footed. Habakkuk's first response, though, is not to go off to his corner and calculate a response. It's to talk back to the Lord and say, Lord, I don't understand. And his first move 
in his confusion even, is to rehearse the character of God. But there's trouble here because what he knows about God does not seem to mesh with this decision. Instead of finding comfort from the character of God, there's more confusion. Look, look at it, though, how he re- rehearses the character of God. There are four attributes he mentions in verse 12. Verses 12 and 13, sorry. Verse 12, though, he begins, Are you not from everlasting? O Lord my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. He's affirming God's eternality, that God always has been and always will be. He is unchanging. And that last phrase, we shall not die, is probably better translated, you shall not die, which is affirming God's immortality. God is from beginning to end. He's alpha and omega. He has no creation moment. He has no moment where he will cease to exist. He will not die. Second, Habakkuk looks to God's sovereignty. He says, oh Lord, you've appointed them for judgment. You've marked them for correction. God essentially was choosing to use these people. These mighty Babylonians were in the palm of God's hand. And God was using them to enforce justice. But then Habakkuk cites God's protection. He calls God his rock. You see that at the end of verse 12? Oh Lord, you are my rock. A rock was a, a, a place that you could go for protection and safety a place to hide in, a place of stability. And then in 12 and 13, he references God's holiness. My holy one, you are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look at wickedness. God is holy and perfect and pure. And yet what Habakkuk knows about God and what God has ordained do not seem compatible, which leads Habakkuk to his next question, which is a familiar one. Why? Why, Lord? Twice he asks this question, and the Net Bible, N-E-T, captures the heart of this question well. It, it, it translates this verse this way. So why do you put up with such treacherous people? Why do you say nothing when the wicked devour those more righteous than they are? And what he's saying is, God, this doesn't seem to be just or holy or loving. And this wasn't just one of these theoretical questions. He wasn't walking out to the local coffee shop and having a discussion with his seminarian friends. The Babylonians were coming. God was on the move. And so Habakkuk raises this question and then points it directly to the situation at hand in verses 14 through 17. And he uses a metaphor. Maybe it took a little turn for you as we read it to begin with. It did me the first time I read it. Like, why is he talking about fishing? A dragnet and fish, and and what's going on here? Well, Habakkuk is using a metaphor. He says in verse 14 that God has created people like the fish of the sea who teem in the ocean. And the Babylonians, verse 15, they come along and they're like fishermen. And they're casting their net in and just dragging it along and pulling up fish indiscriminately and capturing whole nations in their net. And then they boast of it. They brag about it. They rejoice and are glad, verse 15. And in verse 16, then they do something which would be totally illogical. I have never seen a fisherman, whether a recreational fisherman or professional one, after they make a catch of fish, take their pole or take their net and set it up on rocks and bow down before it and worship it. I've never seen that. Now, several of you fish, and maybe you can correct me later if you've done that. 
But that's what these people do. Verse 16 says that they sacrifice to their net and burn incense to their dragnet. They're worshiping the very instrument of their conquest. That references, kind of refers back to verse 11 that says their God is their military strength. It's the military that enriches them and allows them to live in luxury. That's the end of verse 16. Their food is sumptuous and plentiful. They're living in luxury. And so verse 17, Habakkuk is raising a heavy question. Shall they continue Are you going to let them keep doing this, God? How long before someone looking at you, Lord, how long will it be before you stop the evil? Why do you remain silent when the wicked swallow up the righteous? Habakkuk has a point. It doesn't seem holy or right. And again, we'll see this in a moment. His his tone is not demanding or argumentative. It's humble. And God is going to come and answer him. And God's answer is chapter 2 and and some of chapter 3. And God has several parts to his answer that are instructive for us. We'll see one of those parts to his answer today. But before we move on and see God's specific answer in this chapter... We need to try to answer this question from the rest of Scripture because this is a big question. Why would God let a wicked nation judge a more righteous one? Why would God send evildoers to judge those who are doing less evil? And our first impulse, my first impulse, is to say, well, God, that's not fair. That's not fair. Anyone else feel that way? (laughs) It's not fair. There are a lot of people who feel that way. And the fairness issue is so difficult because in our eyes, it isn't fair. But you see, God doesn't look at humans and grade us on a curve. He doesn't look down and say, oh, okay, well, you're, you're a B-plus sinner. You're a C-minus sinner. You're an A-plus sinner. That, that view of fairness and making God act the way we think is fair actually means that we're not taking Scripture's view of sin. Because Romans 3 says very clearly, there is how many righteous? No, not one. And so when God looks at humanity, he's not looking at some pretty good sinners and some pretty bad sinners. He's looking at people who are totally unrighteous. And if we look at a sliding scale like this, we, get start, we start thinking about a works-based approach to God. That, hey, I'm a little better than the next person, so God, you ought to Treat me a little better. Is that how we got saved? Is that how we were born again? Praise God, it's not. It's all of grace. Because God says to us, you're dead in your trespasses and sins. And so the fairness issue, as natural as that is for us, has to be resisted. The notion of some being more righteous than others is a human distinction. Now, does God judge some sins more severely in this life? Yes. But to say, I'm more righteous than the next person, so you should treat me differently, is not gospel truth. To say, Lord, I'm totally dependent on your grace, that's the gospel. So let's take this from another angle. Can a holy God use evil and remain holy? Can a holy God 
use evil and remain holy? Yes. Because God's holiness is so pure that he's not tainted by our sin. I'll give you an example. When Jesus was on this earth and he walked around healing people, he healed a group of people called lepers. Leprosy was a very contagious skin disease. And in the Old Testament law, lepers were not allowed to touch anyone or anything. And if they touched someone, they would transfer their sickness to that other thing or object or person. But you know how Jesus healed lepers? He touched them. And his holiness and power was so great that he was not contaminated by them, but his purity healed their sickness. Can God use unholy people to accomplish his will? Yes. He is not tainted by our holiness. Further, a holy God only uses unholy people in this life. I am your pastor. I sin a lot more than I wish I did. I am unholy. Before God, I'm considered righteous. If you're a believer in Jesus, before God, you are considered righteous. But are you perfect? Do you have things about you that you say, you know what, I could commend myself to God. Hey God, I'm pretty good at this area. You should use me over here. He only has unholy people to use. He has no one else at his disposal. But what about the distinction between using his people and using pagan people, using people who reject him? Well, has God ever used unholy people to accomplish his will? People who are not right with him? Yes. He uses those people all the time. Think of King Cyrus, the Persian king, a man who was a pagan. God used him to bring his people, the Jewish people, back to their homeland. Or think about Pharaoh. When Moses was there in Egypt leading the people out, Pharaoh was evil, unholy. And God used him to show his power and glory over the Egyptian pantheon. You see, God's sovereignty means that he can turn even the wrath of man even into a vehicle for accomplishing his purposes. Now, some of you might be thinking, what about utilitarianism? And I know there's a segment here that's saying, well... What about that? Utilitarianism simply is the belief that if it does a great good for a great number of people, it's okay. It's, it's kind of a morally relativistic idea. For example, let's legalize drugs and use the tax revenue for something good like healthcare or preschool. And if everybody's okay with it, we can just decide it's all right. Is God using evil in that sense, like taking a poll and saying, well, my people think it's okay, so I'm going to relativize it? No. God is sovereignly overseeing all things, using even the evil intentions of man to bring himself glory. Joseph said in Genesis 50, verse 20, but as for you, you meant evil against me. And God permitted it. But God meant it for good, to bring it about as it is this day, to save many people alive. Isaiah 61.3 says that God can take ashes and turn them into beauty. And as we mentioned last week, the greatest masterpiece of God taking ashes and evil and, and creating something beautiful is the cross of Jesus. 
where wicked men, Peter preached in Acts 3, wicked men killed the author of life and God raised him up and exalted him to his right hand. God sovereignly chooses to use evil people to accomplish his will, even if that doesn't seem fair to us. And frankly, I I think we can be glad about this, that he's able to use evil things for his glory because if he couldn't, then he wouldn't be wise enough or strong enough or good enough to use our suffering and give it purpose. Now, that doesn't mean that answers to suffering are easy. It doesn't mean that, oh, we can go glibly through life whistling like Pollyanna in our rooms. You may be sitting on an ash heap right now thinking, I, I can't see forward. I have no path forward. Wondering why God has permitted something evil in your life. But again, it is only the biblical worldview that can call evil for what it is and not fall into despair. And Habakkuk is teetering. He knows that, that God is going to answer in some way. He doesn't know how or when. And for you and I, answers may not come quickly. We may have to wrestle for long periods of time. And so what are we supposed to do in our wrestling? I think we can imitate Habakkuk's posture. In verse 1, he says of chapter 2, I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart or the wall and watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer him when I'm corrected. This is Habakkuk's posture. He's waiting for God to answer like a sentinel upon the city walls, watching and waiting. And he's waiting quietly for God because how does God often speak to us? In the noise and the shouts and the the, the demonstrations of fireworks? No, God often speaks how? In a still, small voice. Notice Habakkuk's humility here. He's assuming that God will correct him. What does he say in verse 1? what I will answer when I'm corrected. He knows that, that if his rehearsal of God's character and his situation don't mesh, then something has to change in his mind. And he's waiting for God to correct him. And because he is humble in his waiting, seeking God's guidance, because he's not pounding his fist on the table, God, you have to answer me. God comes to him and answers him. He doesn't dismiss his concerns. And his answer stretches to the end of chapter 2, and then there's another answer in chapter 3. But we're going to look at only three little verses, because this is God's introduction to his answer, and it's very instructive for us. Habakkuk 2, 2 through 4. Then the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, that he may run who reads it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, But at the end it will speak and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it. Because it will surely come, it will not tarry. Behold the proud. His soul is upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. What is God's prescription to Habakkuk? Basically the first thing he says is Habakkuk, live by faith. That's where we get our theme for the year. Habakkuk, live by faith by faith. In in verse 2, God commands him to write the vision on tablets. That probably refers to the vision in chapter 3 that we'll see in a couple weeks. And then he's supposed to, to make it plain. And these tablets were probably wooden tablets. 
in the last part of verse 3 is interesting, that he may run who reads it. And there's, there's two ways you can take that. Uh, the commentaries are, are split. Uh, one of them would be like a herald needs to be able to carry this message and then proclaim it when he runs. The other option would be that those who see this message can quickly read it as their eyes run along it. Like a billboard, think of a billboard as you're driving down the highway. You can easily see where you're going. There are good arguments for both. Either way, what, what's the point? The point is that God wants Habakkuk to write this down in a way that's very clear. Now this vision that's coming that he's supposed to write, verse 3 says, is going to take a little while. The vision is appointed. It, I have a set time that I'm going to show this to you. So if, if there's a delay in my answer, God is saying, be patient. Wait. Twice he says, wait for it. It will surely come. It will speak. Wait for it. Be patient. And then verse 4, God really gets to the heart of the issue. And he says, when, I, when you are waiting on me to answer, there are two options you have. First, behold the proud. His soul is not upright in him. You can either respond arrogantly and say, I don't need God. I'm not going to wait for God. And if you turn away from God, you really are turning to yourself in self-sufficiency. You're trying to make sense of your brokenness in life on your own. The other option is to respond how? To live by faith. To humbly trust God and wait for his answer. And that's the question that we face today. In your brokenness, in your suffering, you can either respond arrogantly or humbly. The arrogant reject God and trust themselves. And the sin of self-sufficiently, I can't even say it. The sin of self-sufficiency, trusting in myself, is so subtle and poisonous. Because it deceives us into blaming God for our problems because he's not answering us. He's not doing it according to our timing or our will. And yet, it's our self-sufficiency that's the real problem. The righteous person, though, in contrast, lives by faith even when they don't understand or don't see how God is working. So in your brokenness, please, please wait for the Lord. If it seems like God is taking forever to answer Psalm 27, 14, wait on the Lord. Be of good courage. He will strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Now this phrase, the just shall live by his faith, that may be familiar to you for good reason. It, it really is the very heart of the gospel. And it's, it's quoted three times in the New Testament. Uh, Romans chapter 1 verse 17 quotes this. Galatians chapter 3 verse 11 quotes this. We're going to study the book of Galatians after Habakkuk and pick up this, this quote for this reason. The just shall live by faith. Justification, being declared right with God, is by faith. And Romans 1.17 is telling us that those who are justified by faith continue to live the Christian life by faith. From faith to faith is what the text says. The third reference in the New Testament is in Hebrews 10.37 and 38. And that passage is actually most similar to Habakkuk. 
Because what Hebrews 10 and 11 is telling us is that as long as we are in this life, we are pilgrims and sojourners. And it is our faith that guides us through the suffering of life into glory. This is a huge, huge aspect of this book. Habakkuk actually structures the entire book to emphasize this point. Now, occasionally, I like to get a little nerdy, and I'm going to assume that many of you are in the boat with me. This book, I think, is laid out with a specific structure. It's called chiasm. The Greek letter chi is our letter X. And so you can see from the diagram on the screen that the center is the most important part, and the sections leading toward the center and leading away from the center are parallel one to another. So Habakkuk has a burden at the beginning of the passage, and by the end of the book, his burden is replaced with trust. God then responds to Habakkuk at the beginning, and there's a parallel response from God in chapter 3. Habakkuk articulates his dilemma at the beginning of chapter 3. He expresses a request. God gives a command, as we've just seen in chapter 2, verses 2 through 4, and then God continues in verse 5 through 20 to, to explain his judgment. And at the heart of the book of Habakkuk, and at the heart of the gospel, and at the heart of the Christian life, is this little phrase, the just will live by faith. What this reveals to us is our critical need to live by faith in life's brokenness. But if we're honest, it's far easier and more natural to us when life shatters around us to get angry, to get confused and doubt, to be afraid, to be silent. It's far easier to respond in one of these ways and run from God in anger rather than wait for him and act in faith. And, and that, that's a wrong response. And I understand if, if you're suffering, if you're, if you're sitting on the ash heap, as I said a few moments ago, you don't want people telling you how to live because our pride flares up and, and you know, I'm suffering, kind of leave me alone. And so I want to be as gentle as possible that there is no healing if you do not turn to God in faith. And that, that goes against any, every grain in our bodies because our response is to say, I'm done with God. I'm running away from him. And yet any response to suffering that moves you away from God is your enemy. It's not your friend. Being angry at God, giving him the silent treatment, questioning him and demanding that he answer us, none of these things are helpful. We need faith to draw near to God even when our hearts ache and life seems to be shattered around us. And we need faith because it's faith that clings to God who sustains us through our trials. And so in our remaining time, I'd like us to think about how faith sustains us through life's brokenness. Faith sustains us through life's brokenness, and it does this in four ways from this text. First, faith prompts us to rehearse the character of God. Habakkuk's first 
action, when he, he didn't understand something, was to go to God and rehearse God's character. And his goal here is to reconcile what he knows about God and loves and believes with what he's seeing in life. And that, that was hard for him. But his goal, as we've seen, is to submit and to yield, to be corrected by God. There's a, there is a way that we can rehearse the character of God for the wrong reason. And there's a very vivid illustration of this in the prophet Jonah. You see, Habakkuk isn't the only Old Testament prophet to take complaint to the Lord and rehearse the character of God. But Jonah's issue was not that he remembered God, but that he was trying to weaponize God's character against him. You say, how so? Well, Jonah's story is fairly well known. He, he gets the command from God to go to Assyria, to Nineveh, to preach. Now, Nineveh was the superpower at the time. They had threatened Israel. They had oppressed Israel. They were pagan. They were just brutal. And Jonah doesn't want to do it, so he runs away. And then he's thrown out of the boat, swallowed by a whale, or swallowed by a great fish, as the text says, and then spit up on land. And in chapter 3, halfway through the book, God gives him the word of God again, which is to go to Nineveh. It's his grace calling him a second time. And Jonah gets to Nineveh, and he's still got an attitude, because you know how long his message is in the Hebrew? I think it's like seven or eight words, something like that. It would be like me walking in on a Sunday morning say, you all need to repent because God's going to judge you if you don't. And then I sit down. Now, a couple of you might be happy about the brevity of that message. But that, that demonstrates Jonah is doing what he's supposed to do. You know, I'm obeying on the outside, but I'm disobeying on the inside. And so he then goes out of the city hoping to watch God pour out some disaster like Sodom and Gomorrah again and rain fire down on the city. But the city repents. Praise God. And Jonah's ticked. He's stewing about it. And in chapter 4, God comes to Jonah and says, why are you angry? And Jonah says this. He prayed to the Lord and said, ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know, I know, you're a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. He is quoting God's self-revelation from Exodus 33 and 34 and saying, I'm unhappy because you are merciful and gracious and loving. Jonah illustrates this danger of using God's character against him. And, and we have to admit, suffering warps our perspective. It, it makes us see things differently, which is why in suffering, remembering God perhaps can cause doubt or discomfort. And yet, the character of God is true north, the sunshine that breaks through the clouds. So we have to hold fast to what we know. We have to hold fast to what we believe about God. And this decision, as we've seen from Habakkuk, to rehearse the character of God led to greater questions. And you may be in that boat 
what you know about God does not seem consistent with the way he's acting. And in that situation, faith is important still because faith encourages us to believe that God is at work. Number two, faith encourages us to believe that God is at work even when we don't like what God has done. I don't think Habakkuk would have chosen this. I don't think he liked it. And no one in their right mind would choose suffering. No one in their right mind would choose to let these things happen. Faith says that God is at work, that God has a purpose in our suffering, that suffering is not meaningless. But faith also encourages us to believe that God is at work even when we can't sense him. This was Job's problem. Job is suffering and he's searching for answers and he doesn't feel like God is around him. And and you may feel like God has abandoned you too. You're alone, proverbially in the dark, in a mist, searching, groping for God. And it's faith that assures you that even when you can't sense him, he's there. And faith encourages us to believe that God's at work even when we don't understand. Even when we don't understand. You may never understand this side of eternity. One of my favorite quotes from Ken Collier, the longtime president of the wilds, is this. When there's a gap between the wisdom and the ways of God and our understanding of God's wisdom and ways, we have to fill that gap with trust. And and the reality is, when God's ways are not understandable to us, there is a gap, and we will fill it with something. And we have to resist the temptation to fill it with doubt or anger or silence. We have to fill it instead with faith, with trust. You know, Joni Erickson Tata agrees with that. Her story may be well known to you, but it's worth repeating. She had a diving accident as a teenager that left her paralyzed. And she writes that in those early days, she was really grasping and groping and just trying to make sense of why God permitted it. Because God's sovereign. He could have prevented that from happening, but he didn't. And night after night, a friend of hers, a family friend named Steve would come and and they would open their Bibles together and they would talk. And, And she asked him, this, I always thought that God was good, but here I am, a quadriplegic, sitting in a wheelchair, feeling more like his enemy than his child. Didn't he want to stop my accident? Could he have? Was he even there? Maybe the devil was there instead. Those are heavy questions, but they're honest. And I think there are many of us here who have, who have wondered those very things. Her friend Steve leaned across the family table and said, Joni, God put you in that chair. I don't know why. But if you will trust him instead of fighting him, you will find out why. If not in this life, then in the next. He allowed you, he let you break your neck. And perhaps I'm here to help you discover at least a few reasons why. And then he paused and Joni says that, that what he shared with her next changed her life. He said this, God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. And, and at first glance, that may be really uncomfortable. And, and no, that can't be, that can't be true. Well, what are the alternatives? That God sends evil because he enjoys it and loves to see us suffer? Well, that's not it. Well, maybe God can't control evil, so he manages 
its devastating effects. Well, that's heresy. What about God permits evil, but it accomplishes nothing good? That's meaningless. My brothers and sisters, the hardest thing to do in our suffering may be to accept what God has permitted. But that acceptance, that humble submission, is itself an act of faith. Faith believes that God is in control and God will use this suffering for his glory and your good, even if you don't like it or don't understand. Because ultimately, you don't have to understand your pain to believe that God is in it with you. You don't have to understand your suffering to believe that God is there with you in it. And and letting go of the why question or, or, or not having an answer to that in this life is hard. There are loose ends in my life that I wish I knew the answer why. But are we going to get so hung up on why, why, why that we miss the fact that God is still there? It's faith that encourages us to believe that God is at work even in the pitch darkness. And when we sit in the darkness, faith fosters humble patience upon the Lord to wait for him to act. Faith is what tells us to be patient. And you may need to be still in your suffering. I don't know your situation well. You may be going through some things that you just have to be patient. You have to be like Habakkuk and and wait on the wall. And, And if you're agitated in your grief, it may be that because you are noisy in your soul and agitated in your heart, that may be the very reason why God has not shown you an answer. Perhaps God has not answered you because you're not ready to receive it. So again, as gently as I can say, confess that to the Lord. Ask for his help to quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. We all want our suffering to be over with quickly. I don't know of anyone who says, I'm just so loving this hardship, this pain. That's weird. We don't love pain. But the fact is, God may not alleviate the suffering immediately. He may not alleviate the suffering at all. He may allow you to sit in the hardship. And and if he does that, through it all, he supplies his all-sufficient grace. That if God has placed you in a situation, he will give you the grace to navigate it. Since he is, 1 Peter 5.10, the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus. After you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. God will do that. Which brings us to four. Faith lifts our eyes to our eternal rest. When when, when we go through brokenness and suffering, it's like the only thing that we can see. We can't see much more beyond like the thing right in front of us. And what faith does is say, lift your eyes See beyond the temporary pain to the eternal glory. I love 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18. Because it gives us the necessary perspective. It appropriately weights the suffering we have in this life as compared to the eternal glory. Paul writes, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, it's light and temporary, he says, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, 
but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. There are a lot of heavy things in this life. And if the scriptures call our heavy burdens and our heavy griefs a light momentary thing, it's not demeaning our suffering. It's actually emphasizing the weight of glory. Because we know suffering. We know hardship. It's hard and it's heavy and it hurts. And we can't imagine the weight of glory to come. And that's what faith does. What is faith's role in suffering? Faith is our lifeline that clings to the Lord through life's brokenness. It's what propels us toward our heavenly home, putting one step in front of the other. It's what empowers us to live a godly life, suffering for his glory. It's the rope that clings to the Lord Jesus, who is the anchor of our souls. It's the oxygen that we breathe, our lifeline in our Christian life. Yet, in our suffering, a tremor emerges from the deeps. And a question is raised in our minds, perhaps. What if my grip slips? What if I can't endure? What if my faith fails? And if you're in that space, you need to rest in Jesus' promise. He will hold you fast. Be assured, Jesus clings to us. I give unto them, he says, eternal life. No one shall snatch them from my hand. Jesus sustains our feeble faith. And so, as Jude 24 and 25 says, our Savior is able to keep you from stumbling. And he will present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we need your grace. You've called us as your people, the just, to live by our faith, and, and it's so hard. So all over this room, we cry out to you, individually in our suffering, through our health issues, through our loss, through our challenges, through the, the trials that lay in front of us. We just ask for your strength. And we need faith. And we trust in your grace that is all sufficient, that will sustain us, that will support us, because you are a God of grace who's promised it to us. So for those that are suffering, their lives are broken today, we pray that you would heal them, Father, as they trust May the simple act of faith in turning to you and attempting to cling to you as they rest on you be an encouragement to their soul and would pour medicine into their broken hearts. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus, our compassionate Savior. Amen. Thanks for listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. If you enjoyed this content, please consider sharing it with others. Our mission at Red Rocks Baptist Church is to know Christ and to make Him known. May God bless you as you follow Him.